So you do not have an outline today, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 21. Um, a slight thought went into it in not giving you guys an outline. And so if you have a Bible, use your phone, you got pew Bibles, uh, we're going to be flipping around a little bit. It's always good practice to get the Bibles in your hand, do, the, do your sword drills as we're, don't rely on the screen, although the guys in, the, in IT will have the uh, verses up there. They don't know what they are yet either, so they're looking them up just as fast. But it's good practice to have your Bibles in hand. Uh, we're going to read out of Acts 21. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We are going to go through the whole chapter this morning, um, but we'll do some several other flipping. And I, uh, Let's pray, and then we'll get into the three main points. Father, we pray that you would be glorified here this morning, that we would receive your word with gladness, with, with diligence, uh, and we would do as the Bereans do and search the scriptures and see if these things were so. We pray that as we uh, go through this Bible study and lead into worship, that you would pour out your spirit on us, uh, on every one of us, Lord, uh, to glorify you and praise you ecstatically this morning. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so I've asked for like three or four weeks uh, since I've been going through Acts on, uh, on feedback. Only two people gave me feedback, so I'm just going to keep going. No news is good news, I guess. Uh, but if you absolutely hate it, just let me know. I really would like feedback, uh, positive or negative. And so we're going to be in Acts 21 today. We're trying to do whole chapters at a time. This is a good one to, to go through as the whole chapter. And um, I kind of uh, tailor them towards whether I'm doing the 9.30 or the 10.30. So the 9.30, just so everybody's aware of my mindset is I don't care if you talk back. I don't care if you ask questions. I don't, might even ask you guys questions. The 9.30 is more of a teaching, and the 10.30 is, is preaching. And so don't talk back during the 10.30. Uh, ask, ask him later. Uh, so, I don't mind if you uh, if you have questions or or comments. Uh, just don't go on a ten minute tangent. If you want to do that, we'll just get you up here next week. So, what I want to bring out in Acts twenty one this morning is is just as a reminder, we're looking at the book of Acts and really Acts one eight that says you will see power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the rest of it, you, you see there are miracles and signs and wonders done, but really the power is in the witness to be disciples of Christ, witnesses to the nations, uh, witnesses to stay faithful to Christ through persecution um, and power to put sin to death and live a new life according to Christ. What you see historically in the book of Acts is all of the promises being fulfilled that were to Abraham, to Moses, to, to Adam, and even the garden. All of these promises are, are now being fulfilled in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. And so everywhere that the uh, Israelites failed, the church is succeeding. And so that's one of the main kind of meta-narratives in the book of Acts is that this is the new Israel. This is the chosen people of God who are actually going to fulfill through the power of the Holy Spirit what God has called his people to do. Is it in uh, Mark or 
That's in Mark. Yeah, that's contested uh, at the end of Mark. The, um, uh, that's contested because the earliest manuscript evidence that we have don't have those verses. It doesn't mean that they weren't there. Uh, or non or Right, and it doesn't mean that they're non-authoritative. I also don't think you should just go picking up poisonous snakes because the Bible says you can. Uh, I think at least specifically in those verses, you see those things clearly fulfilled in the book of Acts. Uh, like Paul gets bit by a snake and he doesn't die. So uh, if you go down to like the southern, southern Kentucky, Tennessee area and you see a box and it's like kind of rattling and you go in to visit a church and there's like, you hear some hissing, uh, you might, there might be snakes. There might be snakes in the church. So there are... Uh, and then there's that weird heresy thing where they will actually ask you to put your hand in there and to tell if you've been sinning or not. And I'd be smart enough just to be like, hey, I'll confess, I'll repent. I'll tell you what it is. I don't, I don't need to be bit by a snake. So, so, but that's what we're looking at the, in the book of Acts, that this is the fulfillment. This is in a new covenant. All the promises to the Israelites have been, has been fulfilled in Christ and is um, I don't want to say transferred to the church because there's a, uh, if you look up replacement theology, that's the view that the church replaces Israel, and it's a little bit of a misnomer because uh, in replacement theology, we don't believe that the church replaced Israel. We believe that there's always been a true covenant people of God, and all of those promises have always really been there that was in a nation, a group of people, and that nation group of people truly transferred into uh, the church, not that the church replaces Israel in any real sense, but in the sense that all the people of God that were in true Israel uh, before Christ died became the church after Christ rose. And so uh, just replacement theology is a little bit of a misnomer, but what we want to look at today, because we're transferring in the narrative of Acts where Uh, We've been looking at how to build culture, how the gospel is going and building churches, building societies, changing changing nations, changing people groups, uh, and how that's being a witness to Christ. But now, pretty much for the rest of the book of Acts, we see, even though it's been we've been following Paul for half of the book so far, is that now it's really just specific into Paul's persecution, getting arrested, his traveling to Rome, and so. He's not planting churches anymore. And so we're not going to be able to look at how this is uh, part of the cultural mandate to change cultures, to change people groups, to build churches. Uh, but we're going to look at the, what Paul's calling was and what, what's going on with him and how that's a call for all Christians in his, in his mindset. And so I don't know if I brought this out last week in... In Acts chapter 20, I bet that's the Leopolds. That is. John Luke, you want to get that door? I bet Rachel's coming in with the wheelchair. Yeah. So I don't know if I brought this out with, uh, in the last time I talked on Acts chapter 20 is when Paul is, is teaching the, the elders of the Ephesian church. Um, he's, Paul is, Paul's an apostle. He's a prophet. He's a shepherd, he's a teacher, and he's an evangelist. And 
I don't see a whole lot of other people in Scripture who match that level of qualification for, for church planning. And so Paul himself is not a model of how every pastor is supposed to, supposed to be like. Um, but he is teaching the elders, and what he's teaching them is, is the model. And so even Paul being a man, if we hold him up to, the, to being like the standard, we're all going to fall short. And Paul clearly fell short in some areas. Um, <clears throat> like he, uh, uh, like we mentioned last week, he, was, he went a little over time on his preaching and someone died. Uh, <laughs> that's, you probably got a little, a little flack for that one until he got raised, until Eutychus got raised from the dead. But, uh, but so as we're looking through the rest of the book of Acts, uh, the, what we're going to look at is Paul's, the main principles and, and powers at play that are going in to, Paul's also, even though he was the highest of all apostles, he was also just a regular guy. And so I don't have the Pauling, the call that Paul has. I don't have, I'm not called to imitate uh, Paul in every way. Welcome. Good morning, Rachel. Hey, John. <laughs> and and so we do have this idea. This does happen sometimes when we look at characters in in Scripture and even uh, the story and narrative. That like we're supposed to do it almost exactly how they how it happens. And if it doesn't, then we feel like we fell short. And that's not necessarily true. That that could be true. But we want to look at what are the principles at play. What and specifically in here, what is Paul? Uh, through the Holy Spirit teaching us. And so let's look at Acts 21, verses uh, 10 through 14. Let's start there. It says, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and his hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, The will of the Lord be done. Right? You ever been arguing with somebody and they won't listen and you're just like, Well, the will of the Lord be done. <laughs> That's a little bit what they're, what they're doing. Uh, earlier, I can't uh, have to look a little closer. I think it's in uh, maybe verses like 8 through, through 9 or something. Or it says that they were even urging Paul by the Holy Spirit not to go. And then Agabus, by the Holy Spirit, is prophesying this is what's going to happen. And I don't think Paul's going against the Holy Spirit by continuing to travel to Jerusalem. I think you see it, it looks a little bit like a dichotomy, but I think it's working together that their care and their love for Paul is so much that like, hey, we, we know when you go to Jerusalem, you've suffered persecution in these outlying cities at the synagogues just by speaking. When you get to Jerusalem, they know who you are and, and they're just going to kill you. <laughs> and Paul's like, I know. <laughs> That's the plan, <laughs> right? And, but what Paul says here is, is what I want us to kind of take to heart today is where he says, uh, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem 
for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul had this like huge weight and he knew through these prophecies, through people warning him, he knew through some, like previous persecutions that he's going to go to Jerusalem and there's a very good chance that he's going to die. But he would take the risk. He would be imprisoned. He would die. This wasn't just a theoretical, like, we could sit back in our comfy pews and be like, I would die for Jesus. Would you? Would you, <laughs> would you get up early and go to work and be a good worker for Jesus? Well, if not, then you probably won't die. Would you treat your wife nice? If not, then you're probably not going to die for Jesus. <laughs> to be honest with you, you, do, you probably won't. Right? And so... It's easy for us to say these things, and we don't really suffer any real persecution uh, now, but uh, there could be a time where we do, or if we send people to India or, or other nations, there's a real chance. Uh, when we talk from the pulpit about starting a church in India, we're talking about starting a church in what's listed as the 10th worst nation for persecution in, in the world. They rank number 10. There are, uh, are uh, now the bigger cities are usually safer. Uh, safer is, a, is contextual, but the outlying cities and the villages, uh, uh, it's, it's persecution all day. It's, it's if they don't want the Christians there or if they're a hindrance to their radical uh, Hindu religion, then, then they'll just persecute them. They'll try to drive them out. They'll kill them. And, and the government won't do anything. How do you govern uh, a billion people? <laughs> it's hard, even if the government was opposed to it. But they're not. They're not too. And so they rank number 10. And so when we talk about sending people to India and starting a church, or we talk about praying for the people like David and Aruna and their children and Cornelius and Zipporah and their children and all our other contexts, we're talking about people who really are at in a real place where persecution is a real reality every day. And so when we say continue to pray for them, we mean continue to pray for them, right? Number 10 in the world for persecution. And so, but that's the heart of Paul. That's the heart of what every Christian should be is I am willing to be imprisoned. I am willing to die for Christ. And so uh, now the flipping happens. Let's go to 1 Peter 4.2. I don't think that's actually right. I think it's... Something else. Uh, 4, 9. Wait, wait. What are we talking about here? Uh, it's going to be First Peter 4, 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so what I want to bring uh, apart, you know, across in this teaching is that as Christians, we have an obligation. When, when Paul received grace, when he received the gospel, when he saw Christ, when he, when he really uh, asked, when Jesus asked, or Paul, why are you persecuting me? He knew he was persecuting the church and the people of God, and he knew he was in, in a little bit of trouble. And at that instant, when he was converted, he seems to have this, this obligation uh, to serve Christ, to make him Lord and obey him and, and preach the gospel and do what he's called to do. So we have an obligation as good stewards of God's grace. That's what we're doing. That's what we do as Christians. We have an obligation towards Christ because he has given us grace. Let's go to Romans 6, 
15 through 19. What then, are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of disobedience, which leads to righteousness? Right, I'll stop there. If you, uh, a good maybe principle to keep in mind is, especially if you're, uh, you have struggled with overcoming sin or particular sins or, or helping people in, in any type of discipleship or, or counseling way, is uh, it would be, I think it's Second Peter 2.19 says that whatever overcomes a person, it's that which he's enslaved to. And so slavery is inevitable. The Bible doesn't say that you're brought out of the slavery of sin so that you can be autonomous and free and you can do whatever you want. No, uh, Christ actually brought you out from under the slavery of sin to put you under his slavery, which is by far, uh, well, I wouldn't say much less oppressive, but isn't oppressive, uh, and we become willing love, love slaves. And so slavery is, there's no chance that you're never a slave. You're always a slave, and that's... A good thing under Christ. It says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Right? As Christians, we have an obligation that we, as we study the law, as we study scripture, to actually not just pray for sanctification, but walk it out. And we should have this motto, or we should have this mindset that says, I don't actually get an option. I don't, have an, I don't have an option whether I get to obey Christ or whether I don't get to obey him, whether I get to speak kind and nice words and, and wash my, my wife in the word. I don't get an option. I don't get an option whether I get to raise my kids in the fear and love and admonition of the Lord. I don't get an option anymore. I, I have this obligation, and if I fall on that, I have an obligation to confess it, to repent of it, and to seek the necessary means of grace to continue, right? Because I am, I'm not a slave to my passions. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm a slave to Christ. And he really does, uh, in grace, when we say we're stewards of grace, it actually doesn't mean, like the standard never got changed. It really didn't. The Ten Commandments are still the Ten Commandments. It's not like, oh, let's get rid of like five and six, the obeying your parents and killing people, because those are the two we like the most. Uh, let's get rid of those and then supplement something else. As what happens in, in grace and through the gospel is the standard actually gets raised, but we lighten up a little bit. The burden is lifted. And so when we talk about being, uh, having this obligation, it's a, it's a pleasant obligation, right? Christ says that, that his, his, uh, his burden isn't heavy and, and burdensome and, it's, and his yoke is light. And so what happens through the gospel, what we should be experiencing in this obligation is, is our standard actually raises. And how we treat our kids, how we treat our spouses, how we treat our coworkers, right? We should actually then at the same time lighten up a little bit, right? We should be like, oh yeah, uh, uh, I'm much more of a clean freak around my house. I'm always like, oh man, these people don't put away their dishes and... and uh, but you got to lighten up a little bit. You got to, 
you got to have a high standard, but then, but then lighten up. And so, was that the end of that verse in Romans? I said through 19, let's read 19. And I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once were presented, as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Right? That's just simply how sanctification works is you, uh, you don't just like get sanctified or you, you come to Christ or you come to a new revelation of Christ or a deeper love of Christ and then you're just like instantly sanctified and you got it and you don't struggle and there's no temptations, right? You have to present your members as slaves to righteousness because you do have temptations, because you do struggle. And that, but that's how sanctification works. And so... So that's our obligation. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Mm-hmm. 19b. Shall know this one. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. All right. So you see this. What I want to take is this principle that Paul had is that he has this obligation. He has this deep yearning, this affection. He's like, I got to get to Jerusalem. And by the end of today's uh, teaching in this chapter, we'll see why he wanted to get to Jerusalem, so we'll get there. But he had this obligation, he had this deep yearning, this, uh, this affection. He knew that he wasn't his own anymore. He was bought, and when you're bought, see the correlation to, to slavery, you have an obligation to do what your master tells you, right? When, you're, uh, when we're free from sin in Christ, it re- means we, we become slaves of Christ, Right? So glorify God in your body. Uh, 1, Peter thir- 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? He says, prepare your minds for action. Get ready. You're in a battle. What do you do? You set your mind fully on the grace of God that will be delivered to you. It's not set your mind, like try to think about it like for 10 minutes a day to set your mind on the grace that, that God will probably deliver if you pray enough. Right? That's not what he says. He, it's a promise. The grace will be delivered to you. Set your mind fully on it. It should be a, a mindset about your full every day, all the time. Right? And then the next verse, because the grace will be delivered to you, what then? Should we keep on sinning? No. By no means. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Except for Friday nights when it's really fun to go out to the friends, and, or Saturday night, or Sunday morning when you don't want to get up, or when your boss yells at you, or whatever. No, in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right? There's that obligation again. You don't get an option. You should be holy in all your conduct. Right? You should be set apart. Uh, One of the, one of my most, I don't know, favorite, but dear parts of Scripture is when the prostitute in Luke 7 is weeping at Jesus' feet. And it's like, it seems like if you read the story, in context, it seems like it was a total setup. Hey, 
let's, hey, Pharisees, what do you want to do? Let's invite this Jesus guy over, and then let's get a prostitute here for him. <laughs> right? It's, it seems like I said it, but it doesn't say directly, but the Pharisee, I think, is, is named Peter, or Simon, I'm sorry. It's not Simon Peter, it's just his name's uh, Simon. And uh, they invite him over, and they're having this dinner feast, and they invite Jesus, and then, lo and behold, this prostitute shows up somehow, and uh, she feels conviction, and she is weeping at Jesus' feet, and it doesn't seem like Jesus is the, in the center of the party at this point, and, and, but they are murmuring to themselves enough that I can't remember if Jesus overhears her or just knows by the Spirit, and she's like weeping and probably causing a scene and washing his feet, and, and they're like, if you just knew what type of woman this was, you wouldn't even let her touch you. And Jesus is kind of like, I know, I know what kind of woman she is. And she's washing my feet, and you guys are over here having uh, a dinner party, pretty much mocking the Messiah who came to save the world. And who's, who's in the better position there? The one at Jesus' feet, weeping, or the ones mocking him? Right? But Jesus, uh, but I love that, that, that account of our Lord, because then he says, whoever loves little or has been forgiven little, will love little. And the implication is whoever has been forgiven a lot will love a lot. And so, and, uh, and you know, this, this process, a lot of people think that was uh, Mary Magdalene, but that's not, we don't have any actual scriptural reference. There was just some early uh, church historians that thought that, who knows. But, we have that this woman who was forgiven was like sitting there weeping at Jesus's feet, washing him. And she's the one who's on her, her knees and she's the one who is humble, who gets raised up, who gets glorified. All those Pharisees in their nice garb at their dinner party, drinking their nice wine, mocking Jesus are standing who will eventually be humbled. And so, but Jesus says, whoever, when you, the, the principle that I'm trying to get at is that when you've been forgiven much, when you have really understand the weight of your sin and, and the cost of it and, and what Christ did and how much he really suffered and um, not just suffered in his, his, his uh, execution and his punishments and the crucifixion, but, I mean, like, his family left him. Even Mary, who, like, at one point was like, Come on, Jesus, you're being a little crazy. Come, reel it in a little bit. Uh, and he left, like Jesus left everybody, uh, left his mom, his mom and dad, at least his mom just was, wasn't, didn't seem to be around, but, and his family left him uh, to follow after God's will. And, and so, you know, this, this prostitute in this story understands the weight of her sin, and she understands the obligation she has, Right? Last one on this point. Let's go to Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. This is a, you always, if you get to counsel or, or disciple anybody or, or just meet with, or talk with anybody that's struggling on a regular basis, you always keep like a few verses in the back of your, your head for various things. And this is the one where people are like, man, I'm really trying. I'm really trying, but it's not working out. So Hebrews 12. Um, yeah, let's go one through four. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the good part of the verse. That's the one everyone's like, yeah, consider Jesus. We're, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. You know, Hebrews 11, you got the honor of faith, all these people who who suffered this persecution, these, did these crazy things for the sake of the promises by faith, and consider Jesus, think about him, who, who, uh, who, who went to the cross, who perfects our faith. And then verse 3, consider him who endures from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Right? And in this instance, the church was suffering in the first century, a lot of persecution. Every church was. It says, don't, go, don't grow faint-hearted. Don't stop. Keep going. Then he's like, in your struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How much have you resisted? Are you bleeding yet? If you're not, then just keep going. Can go back to the beginning of the verse. Consider Jesus. Consider all these other, these, the, consider the, the faith that people had put in through the faith God had put in people through the centuries. And then if it costs you blood to resist your sin, keep going. Hopefully, if you're like me, you like not bleeding. Hopefully you can crucify your flesh before it gets to the point where you have to take extreme measures. Right? Jesus uh, said, cut off your hand if your hand causes you to sin. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if that one... If you lose an eye and then your second eye causes you to sin, then you should pluck that one out too. And then if you're still sinning, well, at least you're not looking lustfully anymore. You're only thinking lustfully. <laughs> then, then take more measures. Keep going. Right? We have this obligation towards holiness. We have this obligation towards sanctification. This is in the, what we're looking at in the narrative through Acts is that these people were really holy. They were really set apart. A lot of that comes when, in persecution when uh, it gets a little bit more real per se, but, but that's how every church should be acting. We should be, we'll always have addicts, we'll always have alcoholics, we'll always have people struggling with different kinds of things coming in, but, but you know, low be it for us that they struggle with the same thing for two, three, four years. Right? I think that's kind of crazy, personally. And, and some of that's on the individual, some of that's on our church culture, some of that's on other, other things. But it's, we should be a people of God who is holy, who is set apart, and that will be a huge witness in our community. People come in and be like, oh, you're, like your divorce rate is zero? Oh, that's weird. Uh, we see... I'm going to, I really hope, I'm going to just take a sidebar here. Hopefully we'll get to the end of this chapter. Uh, I really hope I get to do this uh, 26 or so teaching on marriage and child rearing at some point in a class form or, or, or at some point uh, in our congregation. But, you know, there's one thing that uh, constantly means I made a promise to myself that how I treat Noelle when we're courting and engaged is how I'll treat her when we're married. Not meaning, I took it as, 
I'm just not going to do anything that I'm not going to promise to do forever. And uh, that means she probably <laughs> was missing out on some things. Because, you know, a lot of times when you're dating or courting, you're like, I'm going to do all these extra things because I'm going to come off as really nice. And then when we get married, I'm probably going to drop half of those things and because and, we're married and they're stuck. Uh, but you, would, you might be surprised. So I personally, this isn't like a this is the Lord for all of you although I do think all the men should do this, uh, for their wives is open the door for them, or open the car door, open the house door, whatever. And that's probably every couple of months that I uh, get a compliment from another woman that's like, wow, you're such a nice guy opening the car door. And it's like, because if I'm not going to do that for the rest of my life, then I'm not going to do it while we're dating. I'm not going to put on airs and and do something false and put on a false uh, front to try to, convince you know her to marry such a fake nice guy I am and but people actually notice that but so that's just a little thing that how you treat your spouse how you treat your children how you act like the world is actually watching now they might not have the intricate details you could you could open up the car door for your wife and you could go home and and browbeat her and berate her over stupid little things and you can be uh you could be a jerk and, and private and come off, but the point is, is that a community is a much more powerful witness than an individual. And so the community that has this obligation, this has this, you know, I'm, I'm obligated, I'm a slave to Christ, I should be uh, pursuing holiness and, and sanctification in every area of life, I should be looking for Christ and his lordship to be pushed into every corner and aspect of my life. When a, when a church body does that and there's things that are public uh, and they see, like our, our neighbors would clearly see, you know, who opens the car door for who and, and how the children get treated and stuff because it's, it's, we're outside in the summer. At least see that for like seven months out of the year. Uh, it, it really does become a witness. It really does become a, wow, like what's different about that community? And for sake of time, we're going to go back to Acts chapter 21 and skip the middle section and jump straight to verses 27 to 35 because that's when Paul actually gets to Jerusalem. Uh, so I will just sum that up for you. Paul gets to Jerusalem. He takes a vow. Uh, he actually goes ahead of he, he meets with James, uh, James uh, Jesus' brother, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem, and they commend him to, hey, you got these, I can't, four or five guys that are under a vow. Shave your heads. It's probably a Nazarite vow. Show them that you're, you're not rejecting the law by any means, and uh, God be with you to Jerusalem. Um, but they won't have anything really to say against you, Paul, when you get there because you're following the law. Right, and so what happens when he gets to Jerusalem? He gets into the temple, and they don't care. <laughs> they don't care. They instantly start a riot. Um, you can read that through uh, verses twenty-seven uh, to to the end. And so, even with his preparations, even with Paul going out of his way, shaving his head uh, for this vow, um, I don't think it says in, in Acts, but. It's, says elsewhere that uh, it suggests that, you know, even Timothy got circumcised when he started to follow. So he, so he wouldn't offend the Jews and would have an opportunity to preach to them. 
So their, their charge against Paul as the riot just instantly starts breaking out is that he teaches everyone everywhere against the people. He's teaching against the people and against the law and against this place being the, the temple. Uh, you can usually tell when people are speaking that hyperbolically that every, he's teaching everyone everywhere. Ever, the whole world's going up in flames because of this one man's teachings. <laughs> it's, gonna, it's, all gonna, it's all bad if this man lives, right? But that he's teaching against the people, against the people of God, meaning that the Gentiles can come in and are, are chosen. Against the law, meaning uh, against the, specifically the ceremonial sacrifices and against this place, the temple. Well, uh, weren't the Jews a little mad that Jesus was saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again? Right? And so when you live a life of, of holiness, when you live a life that's, that's an, that you have an obligation towards God, it is eventually going to be public. Um, I didn't write it down, but I think it's in, uh, I think it's in Second Peter, first or Second Peter, uh, four-ish, where he says like, don't be surprised when all these like fiery trials and and things come upon you. Right after saying, be holy, for your God is holy. Be as obedient children in all your conduct. Don't be surprised when 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 others persecute you or speak bad about you when you live a holy life, because that is, is sure to come, right? And Paul was uh, uh, an example in this, in the principle of he didn't care, right? He expected it. And don't be surprised when people speak against you, when uh, you're like, no, I got uh, to stay home and get ready for Sunday morning. I can't go out on Saturday night and go drinking. I can't, I can't be involved in this. I can't, you know, uh, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes, uh, going deeper into Christ means that there's a, a separation from certain friends, sometimes even family. And so you should be prepared and, and get a thick skin. Every Christian uh, should look at Paul as an example of how he followed Christ of having thick skin, having uh, when people lie about you, when they want to persecute you, when uh, they want to say slanderous things about you, right? Prepared, get a thick skin. Because when Paul got here, what the, the last thing I want to say about this chapter is uh, the whole reason Paul was going to Jerusalem is you can look in verses 37 to the end, uh, well, all of chapter 22, we'll talk about it, uh, not next week, but the, I'll talk about the week after, is he was looking for an opportunity to preach the gospel because God, he knew that God had some chosen there, some elect who would hear the gospel, who would receive it by faith and be converted and become part of the church. And so uh, Paul does this a couple other places, but he's like, there's this riot going on. They want to persecute him. They literally say, let's, let's kill this man. And he talks to the, uh, uh, the, the cohort, the, the Romans who, who stop this. They see it going on. They stop it. They start arrest him, taking a bear. And he's like, excuse me, sir, can I have a minute real quick? And... He's like, oh, do you speak Greek? And he thought he was like somebody, some insurrectionist. He's like, no, no, that's me. These are my people. Can I, can I speak to them real quick? Like these people who want to kill me? Can I, can I just take a minute real quick before we go to jail? Uh, I just want to say a few things. Uh, <laughs> and That was before. He doesn't find out until uh, chapter 22 or 23. I think 22. 
yeah. Uh, so he doesn't know he's a Roman citizen. The, the Roman soldier thinks he's somebody else who, who led these assassins out into the wilderness. And he's like, no, nah, that's not me. I didn't do that. Uh, but can I talk to these people who are like persecuting me, who want to kill me before I go to jail? Can I just say a few words? Uh, because Paul has this obligation. He has this calling from God to preach the gospel. And so he knew when he got to Jerusalem, that's what he was supposed to do. He was aware that he was going to get persecuted. It's, uh, he was, it was aware that he was going to jail. And he, um, as we read in, in 1 Peter, he set, I think he was setting his mind fully on the grace of God, on uh, you know, preparing his mind for action that, that, the, that there would be grace delivered to him. This was Paul's calling. He's, he's not going to back down. He had this obligation from Christ to preach the gospel wherever he went. He had the obligation to, to live a life, to plant churches, and we all don't have that same obligation to, to speak publicly. We all have an obligation to make disciples. We all have an obligation to be witnesses to Christ. We all have an obligation when, when God gives us uh, times where people are asking or, or we have a, a, some kind of platform or, or an opportunity with a friend or family member to preach the gospel to them. And, and trust that the, that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit would lead us. And so all of Paul's life to this point was leading up to this. He's like, I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm probably going to die. And he's not like, it doesn't seem like he's shaking in his boots. I bet he is scared. But he uses it as an opportunity to be like, I'm going to, uh, there are some elect here who, who God uh, needs them to hear the gospel. And so, I just hope that that, uh, as we kind of transition into going through the book of Acts and looking at Paul's persecutions, that we're we're drawing principles on, on not that we should everybody's life should look exactly like Paul's, but every Christian's life should portray the same principles that we have an obligation, that that we have this this weight in us that I have to look for opportunities. I have to press into Christ, press into sanctification. I have to live a holy life, right? I am under this obligation. I'm not my own, but I was, I was bought with a price. And so that's it. Do it. Uh, before we uh, dismiss for coffee time, um, I'll mention it real quick right now. I've got the uh, the membership, GCF membership covenant agreement available. I'll probably go through a grammatical edit that I forgot to send out to people on Friday. Um, but it's available. We'll have our um, ceremony, our membership ceremony, in I think about two weeks so that if you guys have any questions on it, feel free to ask me or any of the elders. I'll do a teaching next Sunday on it just so that some things are clear. Um, but that will be available at the end of the 1030 service. Uh, we'll have it up here for uh, distribution. But do understand that it will probably go through another round of editing. So thank you guys.